This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're sorry to report at the onset that apparently, we've just gotten news of this, Movie actor John Travolta has tested positive for COVID-19. Oh, I'm sorry. That was apparently a false positive. Mr. Travolta, in fact, has a bad case of Saturday night fever. Yeah, it does seem sometimes that life's going nowhere. We need someone to help us. And yeah, we're all trying to stay alive. So far, so good. I shouldn't be too flippant about that. The current death toll in the United States alone is now exceeding that of the Vietnam War, and it did it all in three months. We'll have a lot to say about that as this hour unfolds. But I thought I would... Start out today's program with some pithy quotes that are appropriate for our current times. How about this from author Haruki Murakami? Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I think there's some wisdom there. Here's one that is sadly appropriate from the great journalist I.F. Stone. All governments lie, but disaster lies in wait for countries whose officials smoke the same hashish they give out. We're all drowning in statistics right now, so I thought I would uh, repeat that quote from essayist and statistician Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who advised us to never cross a river that is, on average, four feet deep. And we have to laugh at what Damon Runyon once said, which was, I long ago came to the conclusion that all life is six to five against. In spite of everything, we cannot help but repeat this one from Betty Davis. I'll see if I can't mock up a Betty Davis on this one. You should never say bad things about the dead. Only good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. And one final quote from another great woman of the 1930s, in this case, Amelia Earhart, who once said the most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is mere tenacity. So let's move sideways into some acts, shall we? What can we think when the leader of the White House's coronavirus task force, yes, that would be Vice President Mike Pence, paid a visit to the Mayo Clinic's headquarters in Rochester, Minnesota this week. He was notified of the requirement that all visitors wear face coverings. And since evidently the Mayo Clinic is partnering with the University of Minnesota to increase the state's testing capacity, the head of the White House's coronavirus task force dropped in. The video and footage of Pence noticeably not wearing a mask, per the clinic's rules, surfaced on social media. It should be noted that since April 13th, the Mayo Clinic has required all patients and visitors to wear a mask or other face covering in accordance with the guidelines from the CDC. For its part, the Mayo Clinic tweeted, but then deleted a message, that it 
informed Pence about its face mask policy before his visit. Politico's Dan Diamond also said that a Mayo Clinic representative explained that it had communicated the policy to Pence and his staff. If you take the time to check this out online, you will find a picture of the vice president in a room with like seven or eight masked individuals. But uh, one thing's for sure, no one's ever going to say, who was that masked man about the president? For his part, Pence told reporters that as vice president of the United States, I'm tested for the coronavirus on a regular basis, and everyone who is around me is tested for the coronavirus, adding, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for me to be here, to be able to speak to these researchers, these incredible healthcare personnel, and look them in the eye and say thank you. Well, I guess maybe the problem is nobody explained to the vice president that he didn't have to put a hood over his head to cover up his eyes, only his lower face. But this gets better. Katie Miller, described as Pence's spokesman, told the New York Times, when the face covering guidelines were developed, it was with the intention to not only protect yourself, but primarily protect others from asymptomatic spread. Vice President Pence is negative for COVID-19 and therefore not asymptomatic. It would appear there is some confusion in the Pence camp about what asymptomatic means and about the fact that As with all tests, being negative is not a guarantee that you don't have it. Since we know in the case of COVID-19, you can have it, be asymptomatic, and yet be contagious, well, that means not wearing a mask is kind of dumb. Because let's face it, it puts other people at risk. At the conclusion of last week's show, asked when I thought we would cross that threshold of 1 million cases in the United States... And I told him that a quick look at the numbers said that it would uh, happen as early as Sunday, but certainly by noon on Monday. And by God, we achieved that unfortunate milestone, meaning that of the 3 million cases around the world of confirmed COVID-19, we own one of those millions. Within a half hour of making that sad prediction, I stumbled upon the statement that had everyone in an uproar last week from the president. Like most people, I was rather flabbergasted that President Donald Trump suggested during his daily briefing last Thursday that there's a possibility of an injection of disinfectant into a person infected with the coronavirus. The group of us immediately got up and went to the internet to see the actual clip. And although it's later been claimed first that, well, that was just a sarcastic remark to a reporter, and later that the press was was misquoting the president, Back to the matter, he did make several statements that nobody over the age of six would be expected to have actually made. Now, the president's spinmeisters have been hard at work trying to do some damage control on this. Although I think they've been spinning like the prop on a Cessna 172, I don't think they really quite succeeded. But since that one speaks for itself, we're just going to let it go. Let's talk about this instead, another fact-check issue. Piece by Sarah Subramanian, Daniel Dale, Marshall Cohen, and Nathan McDermott on CNN cites four statements the president made this week. He claimed last Tuesday that Dr. Anthony Fauci said in late February the coronavirus was quote-unquote no problem. The problem is Fauci never said that. He also suggested that he was correct when he said in February that the U.S. would go down from 15 corona cases to nearly zero, even though most people would consider that to be a wildly inaccurate statement since the U.S. now has more than one million cases. Trump also repeated his false claim that he inherited a broken test for the virus, although 
there was no inherited test for a virus only identified during his presidency. I don't want to belabor this because we've got a lot of things to talk about today, but when you say that the total is going to go down near zero and instead it goes to one million, it just won't do when a reporter calls you on it and you reply with, it will go down to zero ultimately because the plain fact of the matter is COVID-19 may never go down to zero. Sorry to note that uh, I am now familiar with what's being said currently on One American News and Fox about all of this. And I'm further saddened to realize that a lot of people are watching and believing what they're saying. And all I can say is you probably shouldn't do that. Just want to note that there's a lot of blame to go around in this case. And I think we probably should point fingers where fingers should be pointed. We plan to do so over the weeks and months to follow. China did not handle this well, but I think it's fair to say neither did the United States of America. Trump is trying to blame the World Health Organization and, in fact, is trying to cut its funding. But it should be noted that that organization began warning the world about the threat from COVID-19 in early January after Chinese authorities gave it information about the disease's spread in the city of Wuhan. On January 30th, the WHO declared an international public health emergency. Remember that? Yet, Donald Trump waited until March 13th to announce a national emergency here in the United States, and he ordered none of the WHO-recommended measures that helped China and other nations contain the virus. Mass testing, tracing the contacts of the infected, isolating the sick. As a result, noted the Global Times in China, fairly enough, a million Americans have been infected and more than 55,000 have died. It's not the WHO's fault that the U.S. response to the pandemic is among the worst in the world. And this need for testing continues to march on and on and on. I have someone in my neighborhood concerned about the possibility that he has the virus. He called his physician and asked if he get an antibody test and was told no. Not available yet. We reported on last week's program that those alarming numbers suggesting that there's a vast undercount of coronavirus cases here in California and in some other locations are probably unreliable. They've done a survey of antibody tests and discovered that, well, the majority of them are not reliable. It seems pretty clear at this point that those large numbers found in Santa Clara and Los Angeles counties are the result of too many false positives. I thought it'd be good to try and do a little little instruction on, on the matter of statistics for this program, but we are a little bit stuck here on radio without having pictures to illustrate things. So until I can figure out how to do that in a way that uses only words and is yet effective and clear, we'll, um, we're going to defer. Now, I think it's a fair statement to say that the U.S.'s response, considering the resources that we supposedly had available, has been Terrible. March 7th issue, New Scientist magazine asked, How well prepared are we? The magazine probably went to press March 1st or 2nd. It's worth taking a look back just two months ago to note that this distinguished magazine said, Last week the WHO raised its assessment of the global risk from the novel coronavirus to very high, its maximum level. The virus has escaped containment in at least four countries. At this point in time, the U.S. and Britain were considered pretty well prepared. But I think it's fair to say it didn't turn out that way, did it? 
In fact, at this point in time, there were about 100 cases in the U.S., and now there's a million. Most people would think a 10,000-fold increase over the span of two months. But managing we are. And you know what? In the second segment of today's program, we're going to see if we can talk to some of the people who are out there keeping the, out there keeping the wheels of the economy turning. We must all be grateful to them for doing so. So we'll see in our second segment if we can't put a call through and uh, get some updates from folks out in the field. Or at the very least, one person I know who can talk about what's going on in his hardware store. You know, at this moment in time, as I sort of contemplate uh, how it is we want to talk about things and and be positive, but I I feel like that scene in This Is Spinal Tap, when the members of the band go to visit Graceland, and they find themselves staring at the memorial to Elvis in the backyard, and one of them says, he puts things in perspective, to which the guitarist replies, too bloody much perspective. So why don't we take a moment to review mankind's... uh, (laughs) a historical battle with microbes, and see if we can find a highlight reel. Although there are many great historical lives we could take a look at in this regard, uh, I think the number one man on the list has to be Louis Pasteur. It's hard to imagine that not even a century and a half ago, it was Pasteur that established that these tiny little animalcules discovered by Anton von Leeuwenhoek could hurt you. Pasteur was a chemist, not a bacteriologist, because at that point in time, there was no such thing as a bacteriologist. Pasteur had been playing around with some of the uh, chemicals in wine and was asked to figure out why it was the wine crop had done so poorly that year. Keep in mind that at this point in time, man had manufacturing alcohol and wine for thousands of years, but really had no idea what was going on that converted grape juice into wine, until Pasteur, that is. He took a look at the wine under a microscope and found there were yeast cells present. He thought that was kind of interesting and uh, decided to try and kill the yeast cells with heat, which he did, a process which we now call pasteurization, and discovered that the grape's progression to wine, described by author Robert Desowitz as that subtle melange of alcohol and organic acids abruptly came to a halt. This led Pasteur to the conclusion that the true ferments were organic beings. Yes, the national fermentation, the pride of France, was wine made by all of those special French yeasts. 1864 had been a truly bad year for wine, considered a national calamity. It was stuff was undrinkable, or virtually so. Pasteur took a look and discovered that rogue yeasts were making that abnormal fermentation. And that conclusion leads to a remarkable series of researches and discoveries. The beer goes bad when there's another aberrant yeast. The silkworms are dying and the French silk industry is crashing. Pasteur discovers a protozoan pathogen, a little micro, but in this case bigger than a bacteria. And not a yeast either, but, well, it was the culprit in this case. Pasteur and his efforts are soon... Pasteur and his efforts are soon... Pasteur and his efforts are soon joined by others, most notably the German Robert Koch. And what do you know, medicine takes a major step into the modern era. Now before Pasteur, the celebrated English country doctor Edward Jenner learned to prevent smallpox in people by inoculating them from cowpox from milkmaids. This was a similar blistering disease, which turned out to be similar enough to smallpox that if you got it, and it was not a dangerous disease, you were then immune from smallpox. Big deal. This is the origin of vaccination and a topic for a future program. 
Now, neither Pasteur nor anybody else could find out what the microbial agent was that caused smallpox because it was not a bacterium. It was a virus, and viruses are in general way too small to be seen with a conventional light microscope. And although Pasteur was never able to actually see a virus, he did strike a blow for mankind against viruses. The virus in question was the one that caused rabies. Rabies was a scourge of mankind. Mesopotamian codes before 2000 BC mentioned fatal dog bites. The Greek Democritus, circa 420 BC, traveled widely in Persia and Egypt and wrote about rabies in domestic animals, as did Aristotle a hundred years later. Rabies had always been endemic in France. In fact, a major reservation the British had of building the tunnel was the thought of a rabid French dog or fox tearing down the tunnel to contaminate the rabies-free British Isles. Pasteur took on the challenge of rabies, and in 1882, he was inducing it in rabbits by inoculating into their brains an emulsion made from the spinal cord of mad dogs. The rabbits developed typical rabies and died. He then passed the spinal cord emulsion from a dying rabbit into a clean rabbit and noticed that they too died. By this point, all evidence and instincts pointed to the idea that rabies was caused by a microbe of some sort, but it had to be very small because they developed ceramic filters to sieve out even the smallest bacterium, and yet the solution that came out, supposedly sterile, could still induce rabies. They couldn't see it, they couldn't grow it, but they could keep it alive in the spinal cords of these rabbits. Noted Robert Desowitz, and I'm again quoting from Who Gave Pinta to the Santa Maria, Beginning in 1882, Pasteur inactivated morsels of spinal cord from a rabid rabbit by suspending them for a length of time in dry air. Then, in another long series of experiments, he proved that dogs could be made refractory to rabies, immune in other words, with a series of daily inoculations, that's over a week or two, with the inactivated spinal cords of these rabbits. After three years, he had solidly immunized, he had no concept of the mechanism of the immune reaction, 50 dogs. And by 1885, it was showtime. At that point, a nine-year-old boy named Joseph Meister was brought to him. Two days before, he'd been attacked by a rabid dog belonging to the town grocer. There were numerous deep bites on the boy's hands, legs, and thighs. The local physician had cauterized the wounds, but there were so many bites that despite this painful procedure, it was certain the boy would become rabid and die. So it was a desperate, panic-stricken mother had brought her child from their home in Alsace to Louis Pasteur's laboratory. He was the one person she believed who could work the miracle to save her son. On that very day, Pasteur had attended a meeting of the Paris Academy of Sciences where he told two distinguished physicians of the boy's plight. He also told them as of his successful experiments with dogs in preventing rabies and suggested they boldly proceed with the first human trial and treat the boy abdomen, the first dose of a preparation made from the dried spinal cord of a rabbit that had died of rabies 15 days before. 13 of these inoculations were given over a period of 10 days. On the 10th day, the ethical, devout pastor did something that we in the post-Nuremberg age would consider criminally outrageous. Like Edward Jenner before him, who had challenged his vaccinated children with the most virulent smallpox he could find, Pasteur decided to challenge Joseph Meister with the most virulent virus of rabies. This was taken from an experimental dog injected with the material of rabbits, which produced rabies after seven days. Pasteur later excused the act with some lame reasoning. 
He said the final inoculation of the very virulent virus has the further advantage. It puts a period to the apprehensions which arise to the outcome of the bites. Well, in other words, Pester didn't want anybody to say, well, you got lucky. Maybe the boy would have lived anyway. No, he injected the boy with another dose of rabies that would otherwise have been certain to kill him because he wanted to prove his point. Said Desowitz, maybe, but I think Pasteur's curiosity as a scientist clouded his ethical judgment. But as it would turn out happily, Joseph Meister lived, and Pasteur demonstrated that his inoculations against rabies worked. No doubt about it. Rabies, of course, is still with us, but these days, if you're bitten by a rabid animal, you can be saved by these injections. We all hope for the day when this will be possible with coronavirus. But as mentioned on last week's program, there is no guarantee that day will come. We've been searching for a vaccine for HIV for the past three and a half decades and are, are still looking. Since we've been talking in this segment about how the federal response in this country has been less than optimal, I, I note with a great deal of sadness that, that well, I've, I've seen this before and I've seen it even worse. And yes, it saddens me to note that the uh, response to coronavirus in the year 2020 is actually better than the response that we had to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. To quote from Wayne Biddle's book, A Field Guide to Germs, I relate these sad passages. Top federal officials in the United States originally opposed efforts to confront AIDS, apparently because of their bigotry toward gay men and drug addicts. Former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop's comments in 1991, reported in Emerging Infections, are often cited as testimony to this scandal. Said Koop, Even though the Centers for Disease Control commissioned the first AIDS task force as early as June 1981, I, as Surgeon General, was not allowed to speak about AIDS publicly until the second Reagan term. Whenever I spoke on a health issue at a press conference or a network morning TV show, the government public affairs people told the media in advance that I would not answer questions on AIDS and I was not to be asked any question on the subject. I have never understood why these peculiar restraints were placed on me, and although I have sought an explanation, I still don't know the answer. This, of course, is a considerable national scandal here in the United States of America. I was in medical school when the AIDS crisis came upon us, and while former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop refuses to speculate on why it was the government refused to respond to the crisis, this particular MD is not afraid to do so. I don't think you can deny the fact that the Reagan administration figured that any disease out there that was killing IV drug abusers and homosexuals couldn't be all bad. Now, there is one doctor of note that got involved at the very beginning of the AIDS crisis. His name was Anthony Fauci. He'd been doing some pretty good work in immunology at the National Institutes of Health. And when the CDC's first alarming report on HIV was followed up a month later by an even more alarming report, Tony Fauci read it with an uneasy sense that a disaster was looming and said, I made the decision that I was going to stop what I was doing, much to the chagrin of my mentors who were saying, why do you want to give up a great trajectory of a career to study a handful of gay men with this strange disease? But deep down, I really knew that this was going to explode. Keep in mind, this was June of 1981. 
the same exact time that former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop reported that I, as Surgeon General, was not allowed to speak about AIDS publicly. Anyway, Fauci did some good research. It's a long, good article about this by Michael Spector in The New Yorker, April 20th issue, which you may want to check out. One thing's for sure, Fauci knows a thing or two about bureaucratic inertia, but he's a smart guy, and I'm glad he's on the scene. We must take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. When we come back, we'll speak with someone who's operating an essential business in this time of trouble. We can travel to 